sun in all of its brilliance, the King of glory, the King above all kings. This is amazing grace, this is unfailing love, that you would take my Just excited to be here on in as spring is in the air and excited that you're able to worship with us this morning. I am also been in prayer. We have several folks in our congregation that are hurting and ailing and not feeling well, so I ask you to continue to keep them in, in your prayers. Uh, we know that uh, one of our brother uh, Mark Bristow has had his uh, shoulder uh, operated on and he's uh, recovering. It's a slow process, four months. We're praying for uh, Wesley's little daughter Joyce who's in the hospital now and uh, who is uh, doing better but still not out of the woods. And uh, Amon, one of our boys that comes to our adventure, Awanas, on Wednesday nights has uh, got some ongoing issues so, and a lot of other things. And so please don't feel offended if I didn't mention you or your affliction. But uh, we have a lot of people that we're praying for. I know that uh, uh, Alan and Lauren would appreciate your prayers too as Lauren's been battling with some, uh, some bad headaches. And it's just been a, a real struggle for, for her and for them. Let's pray before we look to God's word. Father... Uh, you are holy, and we are here as your people uh, gathered in this place to call upon you. Uh, you delight in the prayers of your godly ones. You said it, Lord. And so we come asking that you'd meet us here, that you'd continue to touch, to bring healing and strength to the bodies that we have mentioned and those that we didn't mention and those that are still facing things. And God, we know that sometimes you take us through these dark valleys for purposes beyond our understanding at the time. Help us to remain faithful and fully committed to you in the middle of the struggles and challenges. And I pray now that as we explore your word, exciting times to look into the truths, to see what God, you, our Father, have written to us as a personal letter to us that we might apply it in our lives, that we might be transformed by the power of the Spirit of God through the work of Jesus Christ who came to redeem us, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, I brought some props with me this morning. Uh, this is my, uh, or was, isn't now, was my, my lunch kit. When I was a member of what used to be called the Boy Scouts of America, no longer, but had the little emblem here, and I learned what a Boy Scout was. We had a motto when I was a Boy Scout, and I'm not going to get it all exactly right. It's been a long time ago, but a, a Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, brave, clean, thrifty, and reverent. Okay, that's what a Boy Scout used to be, or at least that's what we said. Those are the marks. That's what identified you as a Boy Scout. This morning, I want to ask, what is it that identifies us as a child of God? What are the marks that single us out as those who are followers of Jesus Christ? What are the character traits of kingdom saints? And the first and foremost exposition, explanation, declaration of those character traits is found in the text we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 5, 
the first five verses. It's the Sermon on the Mount, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus is done playing games here. He has been baptized. He's been confirmed. He's been affirmed. He's set out to do ministry in Galilee. And now, he goes up to the mountain to do some teaching. And here are the Beatitudes. The, the comes from the uh, Latin word, the Greek word, which means blessed. You see it nine times in verses 1 through 12 in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus kind of came along and shocked them. They were waiting for the king of kings to come in and ride in on his white horse and deliver them from Roman rule. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus said, no, I'm going to teach you how to live. I'm going to share with you what it means to how how God's children need to live. And these Beatitudes, they identify the foundational character upon which kingdom conduct is built. So everything now that moves from chapter 5 through end of chapter 7 is like the first portion is here's the character and now here's how you can enact that that character through your conduct. And that's where we go for the rest of it through chapter 7 verse 29. But these, the Sermon on the Mount lays out the standard of righteousness. And the standard of righteousness kind of exposes us. Because as we walk through these verses we're going to see how far short we fall from what God wants from us, exposing our need for a Savior, exposing our need for what God is doing. But they're not just ideals that are goals towards which we strive, but the text tells us that they're what God does and what God's doing in the life of His people. He is giving us the possession of these character traits and asking us to progress in these character traits. And so as we look at them, that's the idea to keep in mind. And every child of God is at work in here. And the idea is that we are to reflect the light in the darkness. We're to live our lives in such a way that the world who lives in darkness sees the disconnect and is drawn to the Savior, is drawn to the Savior through us. And the light of the Word of God inevitably exposes darkness even, even in us in our souls, and reveals how far we are from exemplifying all that Christ called us to be. But he also reveals to us our need for the Spirit's work to bring about the full realization of these character traits and the conduct that comes with being a part of the kingdom. And so, these are character traits that members of the kingdom of God possess and in which we are to progress. See, We own them if we're a child of God, and we're supposed to grow in them. So I want you to turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, or turn it on your device or your phone, or reach under the seat in front of you, and there is a Bible there, and you can find it, uh, Matthew chapter 5, the very first book in the New Testament. And we're going to look, and this is a little different from your outline in your bulletin, because you'll have to forgive me, I've been changing things on the fly here in the last couple days, but... Uh, I'm just going to say this is the way it goes. But in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 5, if you have your outline in your bulletin, you have like the introductory statement. So I changed it. It's not, just modified it. So in these verses, Jesus instructs his disciples in the character traits we possess, what we own, what we have. And he indicates why we're blessed. He calls us blessed 
And those are the traits we have, but then he indicates why we're blessed, and then he incites us to keep moving, to keep growing. And then he, I think, invites those who are on the outside, those who maybe they're thought about Jesus, maybe they're antagonistic toward Jesus, maybe they're just not sure about this Jesus. He invites them to come and to partake of these blessed characteristics and the promises that come with them. So I'm in Matthew chapter 5, and beginning with verse 1, uh, we, we read this. And when he saw the multitude, he went up onto the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The first three character traits of kingdom saints are laid out there. And I'm just going to set the stage, the multitudes. Who were these multitudes? Well, we saw from chapter 4, verse 24, a bunch of people came to see Jesus. Curiosity seekers, there were rich people, there were poor people, there were sick people, there were religious people, there were wealthy people, there were underprivileged people. They came to Jesus. The curiosity. They came because he loved them. They came because he cared for them. They came because he healed them. And they knew that. You can read in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, that Jesus had compassion for the multitudes, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. He cared. And people knew that he cared. Now, some of them came because they didn't like Jesus and they just wanted to get after him. But they came to see Jesus. And he, he went up on the mountain. Well, think about it. There's a multitude. We're talking a lot of people, maybe hundreds of people. They didn't have, you know, MetLife Stadium. They didn't have, you know, these big stadiums that uh, Franklin Graham and the, and the Super Bowls played in, the New Orleans Saints and, you know, AT&T Stadiums or whatever big stadium. They didn't have those. So he went up on the mountain because then he could get up above, him, above them and they could be down there and they could look up and see him. And then it says that he opened his mouth. Which is interesting because it's a formula for this is the formal teaching. When it specifically states and opening his mouth, it's like he has something important to say. It's like this. If the director of the Center for Disease Control called a special press conference to give an update on the coronavirus, guess what? It would be an official statement. And people would be looking to it for help and for hope in the midst of a crisis. Well, Jesus went up on the mountain and he opened his mouth to give help and hope to the people who many of them were, were in a crisis. And so that's what he did. And he drew upon the Old Testament. As we walk through this passage, we see many references to the Old Testament. But it was kind of a, a veiled sense of spirituality. The Old Testament didn't clearly articulate all that Jesus opens up for us in this text. But as he did so, he, he revealed the standard of living that should mark the new kingdom. The kingdom of God. And this new standard of living was quite at odds with the way people were living at the time, okay? And so he says, opening his mouth, he began to teach them, and he said, blessed are the poor. What does, what does blessed mean? Blessed? Are you blessed? 
Blessed? Well, here it means to be favored. To have God's favor. It means that you have his approval. It's his congratulations. All right? Both now and in the future. He's identifying them as blessed. Blessed. It's, it's a whole lot more than happiness. Okay? It's a settled conviction that we are the recipients of God's grace. And it is for those people who are. Only the people who are the recipients of God's grace, who've understood that Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the debt that they deserve to pay for their sins and have turned from their sin and in trusting Christ and committed their life to follow him, they are the recipients of God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And that not a result of works that no one should boast. Okay, It's a gift of God. So those are the ones that are blessed. And they're poor in spirit. Well, let's look at it. Poor. It's interesting, we just did a mission training the other night on what it means to be poor. And the definition of poverty can vary. Oftentimes, the people who are poor identify poverty differently than those of us who are trying to say somebody's poor. We tend to think of it in terms of material poverty, but I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. But there's also spiritual poverty. There's also psychological poverty. I just feel... Like I don't have any power. I don't have any control over my life. I don't have any say in the world. I feel destitute and and downtrodden and disadvantaged. Well, no, he's talking about those who are poor. They are bankrupt. Abject poverty. Abject materially. Abject spiritual nothing. They've got nothing. That's what when you couple it with spirit. They're poor in spirit. They're not just poverty stricken. They're spiritually poverty stricken. They have nothing to give God. The realization is we have nothing to offer God. I remember when my oldest daughter, Janae, was in cross country, which is an event where you run 3.2 miles or whatever now uh, over around a golf course, and they time you. The first time she did that and, and was... Out for it, I thought, I got nothing for you, girl. You know, if you offer basketball, I can teach you how to shoot. I can teach you how to defend. I can teach you how to dribble. We'll work on that. Uh, Whatever. Softball, I can teach you. I got nothing in cross country, girl. I I, I don't know how to tell you to train. I don't know how to tell you to stretch. I don't know how to, what shoes to buy. Nothing. Jesus says, blessed are those who realize they have nothing. Spiritually, And physically, nothing apart from him. It's spiritual and material helplessness and hopelessness apart from Christ. It's absolutely destitute and utterly dependent upon God. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures on TV of somebody who was rescued from a flood. I have a a picture that I uh, ask Adam to put up of this person. Now, can you imagine standing on the roof of that truck in that raging river waiting for someone to rescue you, thinking, I am going to die. Absolute helplessness. Absolute hopelessness. Absolute destitute apart from God. Our complete, our complete spiritual condition, 
our spiritual contribution, even our material, physical provision reflects that we have only what we have been given. Let me say that again. Who we are spiritually, what we can do spiritually, and what we have materially reflects only what we have been given. Now, I'm not saying there's not some work involved, not some things that we must do, but what I'm saying is that it is by the grace of God we are who we are, where we are with what we have. And I think about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Um, Paul says, uh, do not consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And in chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 7, he says, why do you regard yourselves as superior? And what do you have that you have not received? But if you have received it, why do you boast as if you haven't received it? Wow. My health, where I live, my ability to work, the fact that my brain synapses still uh, connect once in a while, less than they used to in a, in a cohesive way, all that stuff is, is from God. You see, we are spiritually impoverished before we come to faith in Christ. We are spiritually impoverished after we come to faith in Christ in that nothing we have is from us. It's our condition of who we are. It's true. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit for apart from me. You just need to work hard. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what he says. He doesn't say you can just work hard. Okay, I'm, I was being sarcastic, just seeing if you're with me here. I, I can do nothing apart from Christ. We are incapable in our own strength of becoming a child of God. We are incapable in our own strength in progressing in our faith as a child of God. It's a work of God. All of it's a work of God. Poor in spirit really means humble. Humble. That's, if you want to put it in one word, a proper understanding. Here's humility. This is my definition. Uh, I can't even claim it's unique to me, okay? If I did, I'd probably be misrepresenting it, and I wouldn't be humble. It's a proper understanding of who I am in light of who God is. Do we really understand who God is? We talked this morning in the first service about fearing God. I don't know if we really fear God, but it's, it's understanding who I am in light of who God is. It's a likely, this verse, poor in spirit, is likely a reference to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, where the prophet says, But to this one will I look... This is him saying, this is what God says, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. But what's, yeah, go back and read verse 1. He says, um, where should you build a house for me? And, and where is a place that I might dwell? Uh, by my hands I made all these things, and all these things came into being. But, in other words, heaven is my throne, he says in Isaiah 66, verse 1. Now, here, here's a picture. Think about this. Put this in your brain. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. You got a big house? God has a bigger one. Heaven is my throne. That's just the seat of it. That's not the house. That's just the seat. And 
The earth is his footstool. He says, but to this one will I look. The majestic, holy, righteous creator of the world will look, will pay attention to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who is poor in spirit. And Jesus embodied it. Come to me, he said. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find. What did he say about himself? I am meek, humble, and lowly of heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. I am meek and lowly of heart. See, when we yoke up with Jesus, which is what he invites us to do, we're really only learning what it is to be humble. To yoke up with him, we yoke with him to learn humility and find rest. You know, I don't know, I could talk to you all, but you have, uh, life's a mess. and You have affliction, you have persecution, you have hardship. And when we yoke up with Jesus, we learn to be humble in the midst of our affliction. And we learn to understand that we can find rest in the fact that I can't make myself better in Christ. It has to be the work of the Spirit of God. I have to cooperate. I can't rebel. I can't be fighting against Him. But it's the Spirit of God working in me. The internal pressure. I can't please Him on my own. By contrast, now think about the humility that God says is that which is a trait of believers. Now, compare that with the world. What is the world after? Oh, the world encourages self-confidence. The, cur the world prizes self-reliance. Oh, you know, that person's a little bit, you know, they don't really seem too confident on themselves. That's a bad thing, right? They're not, they're not prong, uh, powerful enough. We prize self-reliance. We defend decadence in the world. We value arrogance in the world. We champion independence. The world promotes self-indulgence. I heard something this week. I may have heard it before, but I, if I had, I'd forgotten it. Our governor, the governor of the state of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, every month, once a month, at least once a month, she travels to one of the local prisons in the state of Iowa. And when she's there, she shares with the inmates that she, as a former criminal, because she had a an alcohol and uh, alcohol problem for a long time. She, and she was uh, charged with DUI and had lost her license and some things like that. She, as a former criminal, goes into the criminal justice system and she says to the prisoners, look, I was where you are. Now I'm the governor of the state of Iowa. And this is because of the grace of God. Because of what God has done in my life, he has transformed me. And she doesn't go in there and say, well, she, said, you know, she, does, she, does, she says, it, not in myself, I'm here. Not because I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and uh, put on my big girl pants and went out and worked hard, which she did all that. She says, in myself, I'm nothing. But in Christ, I have been given everything. That's what God calls us to as his children. In myself, I have nothing. But in Christ, I have been given 
everything, but America is blind to our spiritual poverty and our bankruptcy. It's a gut check. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Sadly, many of us as believers are poor in spirit because we've been given this poverty of spirit by, what, by coming to Christ. Unfortunately, we just don't act like it. We come to church and we insist that things are our way. Well, you know, the chairs. I don't really like the way the chairs are set. You know, I think they should be set this way. You know, I don't know about the lights. I think we need them dimmed here and brighter here. You know, the music they play, I'm not sure about that music. You know, I, I think I have a better, my style is not that style, so I think my style should be played. We want recognition. We seek to be served rather than finding ways that we can be served. It's a, it's a fascinating thing for me as I move to the metro Des Moines area and see people shopping for churches. Now, I'm all for going in and, and checking it out. And I think people should go more than once, go two or three times to see. But, but what are we measuring? <laughs> what are we looking for? Yeah, you know, I got to have a feel good. I got to have this. I gotta, no, look at the Bible. Look at the scripture. You know, the God calls us. So we, we as Christians, we want it our way. And I'm not saying it's wrong to look for churches. You should do that. Please do. And, you know, um, find a place that preaches the gospel, that's concerned about mission, that cares about people coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and believes in the inerrancy, authority, and the sufficiency of Scripture. I have to go to a dud. I have to drone on along with bad doctrine. No, not at all. As Christians... Sometimes we just falter. We resist ministry. You know what we want? We want comfort. <laughs> I want to be, have convenience. I want safety. Oh, don't, don't go to Haiti when there's uprisings there. That could be dangerous. Well, use your brain. I mean, don't go to Haiti when there's you know, people protesting in the streets where you're going to land necessarily, although our team landed in Port-au-Prince where they were protesting in the streets, but they didn't get off the airplane uh, or out, out of the airport. Never safer than where we are in the hands of God. Now, I'm not recommending you fly to Wuhan, China right now. Uh, no, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that God is God. It's, it's what God wants us to do. But in our pride, we tend to criticize, complain, and, and moan about things. That's not poor in spirit. That's, that's pride. So how can we cultivate this? I'm going to give you three suggestions on cultivating uh, an, uh, humility in our lives. First of all, gaze. Gaze upon God. I don't know how you connect with God. For me, it's nature. I, I love to go out in nature and I see God's creation and it, it humbles me. But gaze at God. Perspective depends on proximity. God is not big unless I'm close to God. I remember before we lived in the Des Moines area, we would drive down Interstate 35 headed towards Des Moines and right like north of Ankeny, you could see the top of the principal building downtown, right? You see the top of the principal building. And the closer we got to Des Moines, guess what? The bigger the principal building became. But when you park at the bottom of the principal building, it's like, whoa, that place is big. How many of you have ever seen the ocean from a map? From a map. See, we got a map of the ocean. 
Yeah. So let's, let's talk about this ocean over here by, uh, on the uh, left-hand side. See the little tip of the Baja down there? Okay, that's the Baja of California. It's actually in Mexico. But you, you, you see the ocean. Okay, now take a look at the ocean close up. Okay, we got another picture. Well, you can't see it very well, but that's, that's the ocean close up. Now, how many of you actually ever swam in the ocean? Yeah? I tell you what, I can see the ocean on a map, and I have an, a respect for its largesse. I have a respect for how big it is. I can see the ocean from the beach, and I can say, wow, it's a long ways to the sunset. But I'm telling you what, folks, if you actually get in the ocean and you start getting sloshed around by the waves, and you get towed by the undercurrent. I, I remember one time I was being towed out to sea, and I was like, whoa, i got to start swimming fast, because I'm feeling, I felt helpless, and I felt hopeless, and I felt the majesty and the greatness of God. Read the Scriptures, you know. We can, we can understand what the, what the Scripture talks about. Isaiah 40 is a good place to start. Psalm 105 is a good place to start. You can see the majesty and the greatness of God. And then hang out with other believers who are poor in spirit. Find some people that aren't so stuck on themselves. Okay? And it's like, yeah, I kind of like that. Nobody wants to be... You, we don't want to be treated like, you know, we don't want jerks dealing with us, so let's don't be jerks. Secondly, get busy. Serving. Yeah, it's really hard to be stuck on yourself when you're serving other people. If I'm doing stuff for you, it's hard for me to be caught up in what you aren't doing for me. And as believers, we're supposed to set the pace. Get busy. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And then, uh, you know, go to your knees in prayer. What do we say? What did Jesus say? Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. For whoever asks shall receive. Whoever seeks shall find. And whoever knocks, the door is open. So let's ask God. God, create in me a humble heart. I heard this quote once. Nothing in my hand I bring, but to the cross I cling. And what's the promise? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the believers. These people know Jesus. I wonder if you're here this morning. Do you know Jesus? Are you poor in spirit by virtue of the possession you have received from God because you've turned from your sin and you've trusted in Christ and His death alone is the payment you deserve? If you haven't, you can be poor in spirit and grow in that and you can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, blessed are those who mourn in verse 4. Now, this is an interesting one because the word mourn means to groan. This is like an intensely active word. And notice it's ongoing. It's a present tense verb. So it's not that you groaned once. <laughs> Me and some of you groaned this morning when you got out of bed. <laughs> Ugh. 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 Didn't, know I, I didn't know I had muscles back there. No, that's not this. This is sorrow of soul. It's grief in our soul. The sorrow has at least three sources. Okay. And this is grief experienced by the children of God. The first source of this grief is sorrow over sin. Sin in our lives and our proclivity to sin. The presence of sin in my life and the proclivity, even as a child of God. I'm sorrowful 
for the sin. I want you to look at Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Uh, I think this is Paul says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, poor in spirit. Nothing good dwells in me, he says. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. How many have a picture on your phone, you know, like the, what do you call that, the screenshot, you know, on your phone or your computer? You got a screenshot? Now, let me ask you this. Is this a picture you took? Yeah. And is it a picture you would like other people to see? The screenshot on your phone or on your computer? I don't know about you, but for me, I have uh, my screensaver, my shot on my, my computer, is a picture I took. And I thought about that and I thought, how vain. Because I want you to know that I took the picture. I'm a really good photographer with that picture. I didn't show you the picture where I cut off people's heads. But see how subtle our sin is? It's like, I want you to see it. This is me. I have pictures. You know, there's a reason I don't put up some things in my study. Because I've been in some people's studies. And I'm, again, please, this is for me, okay. Well, you know, you got this achievement and this award and this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. So when you walk in, you go, oh, no. You have to be careful. I have to guard my heart. Proverbs says, guard your heart with all diligence. Proverbs 4.23, for from it are the issues of life. Issues of life. Are we saddened by our greed? Are we saddened by our pride? Are we saddened by our selfishness? Our lack of compassion? Our arrogance? Our jealousy? Our irritability? Our desire to control other people? Our perverse thoughts? Or being so critical of others? Sorrow over sin leads to regret, which leads to repentance, which leads to reconciliation with God. It's a good thing to be sorrowful over our sin. But in order to be sorrowful over my sin, I must know that I sin. I'm sorrowful this morning. Because I did something yesterday. That's not the only sin I committed yesterday, okay? But I'm thinking of one particular thing. Because you never just sin once during the day. It's like, well, I'm good to go. You know, I ask the Lord to forgive me for that. Uh-uh. No, no. This is, this is a battle all day. But I did something yesterday, and I was like, why did I do that? I? And I'm in the process of trying to right the wrong right now, you know, not, not this minute, but I, I took care of some stuff this morning. I'm in the process of trying to right a wrong that I did that it was stupid. And this is the thing, is there sorrow in my, my soul because I've sinned? It should grieve us that we would, would bring shame to the name of Christ or to the people of God. That's... The, those who mourn, that's one, one source. I like what MacArthur, oh, I want you to look at Psalm 51, verse 3. I think we have that up there. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Is your sin ever before you? Or are you just kind of like, well, I don't know, I, maybe I sinned. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, no. Here, listen to what John MacArthur says. The faithful child of God is constantly broken over his sinfulness, And the longer he lives and the more mature he becomes in the Lord, the harder it is for him to be frivolous. To pass it off like, oh, well, you know, that's just the way it is. That's me. 
That's my personality. This is the way I... No. Sin is not personality. Okay? I, I, that, that, that's one that gets under my skin. Is like, you know, this is your personality? I'm just an obnoxious personality. <laughs> Excuse me? I thought I read the fruit of the Spirit as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. If it's not that, then it's sin. It's not personality. I'm a rude personality. Oh, really? I think you're just a rude sinner. You know? I'm a sourpuss personality. No, you just don't know the joy of the Lord. There's a difference. Do, am I grieved over that? Secondly, a source of sorrow for believers is the affliction and persecution that comes from following Jesus, from not going along with the world. It's a result of our allegiance to the kingdom. You know, if we live for Jesus, we will be persecuted. We will suffer affliction. And this is a, a, a reference to Isaiah 61, the morning. If you read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, there's a promise of mourning, the promise of deliverance from mourning. And the morning was there because they were in Babylon. They had been taken captivity into captivity and they were suffering affliction and persecution and their faith was being, they were being railed against for their faith. But this is the, the, the persecution, the sorrow, the mourning that comes from not going along with the world. I like what Bonhoeffer said, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the cost of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a commentary on the Beatitudes, or he, he writes on the Beatitudes. He says this, that by refusing to be, as Bonhoeffer states, tuned in with the world or to accommodate oneself to its standards. That's why disciples... We, we experience painful disconnect with, with the world. The world is against us and, and we're against the world. Think about it. The State House, Tuesday night, there was a huge debate over this Protect Life Amendment, which just brings to life the hostility of, of, of the world's perspective versus God's perspective. And any time believers speak out for the truth, any time we speak out for the, the biblical understanding of, of uh, the, the dignity of human life or the definition of, of marriage or whatever, then we're seen as discriminatory or prejudicial or hateful. Why is that? It's the Bible. And so we can grieve over, over that. Second, finally, believers mourn over the current trajectory of the world that is contrary to God. You see... Contrary to the people who would like to label us as hateful and spiteful and discriminatory, it grieves our soul to see the world moving so far away from God because we know that that results in a judgment that we want no one to participate in. There's a holy and righteous God who cannot be in the face and stand in the place of sin. And when sin is in his face, he will ultimately judge. But he has given us his son, Jesus, who paid the price on the cross so that we could be delivered from our sins and not suffer the punishment because Jesus took it for us. And that's the message we bring to the world. So when the world is living contrary to, to the will and the way of God, it grieves us, or it should, but oftentimes it doesn't. I don't know if you heard about this guy, this uh, doctor in uh, Indiana. He, he died in Illinois. He had 2,411 fetuses buried or hidden in his home and in his car. He was an abortion doctor. And when we hear that, 
I think it should grieve us. It should make us sad. It should alert us to the the disconnect between God and the world and want us to reach out so that that he, even he, although he's, he's dead now, even he could find forgiveness in Christ because all of us are sinful. Christ paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow, even for me. And so there's redemption, there's reconciliation. So the message is not do, 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 do. The message is if we do, we're out of concert with God. But God is forgiving and wants us to know his forgiveness so that we can, like those who mourn, in this statement, are blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. The ache in my soul, the sorrow for my own sin, the, the sorrow for being rejected and afflicted and persecuted, the sorrow that I see because the world is walking away from Jesus and they're going to be judged and I don't want that. All of that one day will be remedied. Now I experience the, the blessings. Is blessed, they'll be comforted. They'll know it. So how can we be progressing in mourning? Oh, here's one. Oh, what did you learn in church today? Uh, how we can be more sorrowful. That's a pick-me-up. All right, so you leave church knowing that uh, I'm supposed to be humble and I'm supposed to be more sorrowful. Well, yes, in the right context, and here's the way. Pray, pray. I want to pray that God would expose my sin so I'd see it so I can mourn rightfully and that God would enlarge my heart for those who sin. Because my guess is, you know, how do you feel about the presence of sin in society? Are you sorrowful or seething? You just get ticked off? Oh, those wretched people, what are they doing? Or are we broken? Because they're moving away from God. God enlarged my heart for the loss of Jesus. His heart was broken. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he wanted them to know him. So pray. Secondly, purge the pride through reading God's word and repenting of our own sin. Purge the pride from my own heart. I don't know. Someday I'll, I'll print it off. But I got a sheet in my, for my prayer diary. And, uh, and it's like uh, on, the, on opposite columns, there's unbroken and broken people. And here's the contrast between the thoughts of the, the proud and the thoughts of the humble. And I, I pray that God would break my heart for, you know, and, and make me more humble. <sighs> Slowly, uh, the Spirit of God is working. But purge my heart. And finally, practice confession. Practice confession. James 5.16. Confess your sins one to another. I, I stood up here before you and said, you know, I, I did something that I'm not proud of. I wished I hadn't done it yesterday. And I'm in the process of righting the wrong. But I tell you, I woke up in a cold sweat this morning. Because I knew what I had done is wrong. It's not, that, it's not really that big of a deal for a lot of people. But the Spirit of God made it a big deal for me. So we need to confess our sins. And then he says, we'll be comforted now and in eternity. Now we're comforted. Now we're comforted because our sins are forgiven. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. Praise God for that. You read Psalm 32 and you find out what happens if you don't confess your sin. It's like a weight a ball and chain around your neck and it just weighs you down. It's misery. Because our sins are forgiven and in Christ I can endure the persecution because I'm in Jesus. 
And God is still drawing people to himself. I believe it. I believe that God wants to redeem people who are walking away from him. He wants to draw them to himself and gloriously save them from their sin. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And every one of you here who knows Jesus, if you are poor in spirit, you understand that's exactly what he did. He reached down, grabbed me as a wretched person, grabbed me by the nap of the neck and said, get your life back and check with me. Now, he didn't really say that, but sort of, okay? And then ultimately, the comfort that we will experience is when Christ returns. And that's when Isaiah 61 uh, verses 1 through 11 talks about the justice will come upon the wicked and the reward will come to the righteous. That's an ultimate, will ultimately be realized when what Jesus says in Matthew 3 and 4 becomes fulfilled, that we are comforted. And finally, blessed are the gentle. Now here's another one. It's the opposite of rough and hard or violent. The gentle are not demanding, they're not demeaning, and they're not dominating. I don't think they could run for political office <laughs> or at least be very good at it. No, and that's not true. There are some good, solid, humble people, gentle people that are running for political office. But the higher up you go, <laughs> the less uh, gentleness I see, okay, in, in political office. Jesus embodied gentleness. Remember Matthew eleven twenty nine. He is gentle and humble of spirit. He's gentle and humble of spirit. What does it mean? He rarely demanded his way. I didn't say Jesus never demanded his way because he threw the money changers out of the temple. But he rarely demanded his way. To defend his innocence or to... Uh, or, yeah, or he just didn't do it. Remember, first, there's 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus didn't revile. He was reviled. He did not revile in return. Uh, do we have that up, uh, Matt or... Adam, do we have First uh, Peter? Nope. Yeah, there it is. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, and fi this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. How about you? You like being falsely accused? Now, some of you are younger. Ever, your, your mom or dad ever accuse you of doing something that your brother or sister did? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You like that? You, you said, okay, no problem. You said, no, I didn't do it. He did it. She did it. Uh, that's not gentle. <laughs> I mean, I've been there. I've done it too, you know, driving along and my, my sister and I were fighting in the back seat. My grandpa was driving the car, and uh, we're driving along, and, uh, and my grandpa says, one more time, and I'm stopping this car, which meant we're going to get in real big trouble. We're driving along, and I'm sitting there on my side of the back seat. She's sitting on her back side of the back seat, and all of a sudden, she screams out, stop it, Steve. my grandfather reached around and swatted me on the knee. Now knock it off. I was crushed. I hadn't done anything wrong. Do you know that Jesus Christ went to the cross having done nothing wrong? And he did it for you. And he did it for me. How much more should I, as a child of God, learn to suffer in silence? He paid it all. 
And he did not lord it over people. That's the other part of being gentle, is you're not domineering and dominating. The, Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, he says, the rulers of this age, they lord it over each other, and they exercise authority each other. What does that mean? They power up on people. They manipulate people to do what they want because of their position and their power. You can do what I say. Uh, I mean... Maybe this is not appropriate, but Harvey Weinstein is in a bunch of trouble because he was powering up on people as a film producer. You want to get a casting role in this play, this uh, movie, this thing? You have to do a few things that, you know, for him. The world says, you serve me. God says, I serve you. The gentle don't domineer, they don't demand, and they don't defend, they serve. That's what Jesus says. The Son of Man, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 and 28, says, it is not this way among you, the way the world goes about it. It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The world maligns us, the world marginalizes us, and the world takes advantage of the gentle. But we are f- called to follow Jesus, to serve sacrificially, or to suffer and to suffer silently. Now, we're not perfect at it. That's why we're progressing, right? We're progressing at this. He gave his life as a, man, ran, uh, as a ransom for all. I don't know. Just do a little gut check. How well do you reflect gentleness? Now think about it. I'm going to give you some relationships. How well do you reflect gentleness in your relationship with your obnoxious neighbor? You know the one whose dog comes over and does its business in your yard, but they don't pick it up? Or the one who blares their music loudly and you can't get sleep? Or the one who parks a bunch of stuff in the front yard and doesn't clean it up? How well do I reflect gentleness with irritating friends? And we all have them. They're our friends, but, you know, sometimes they just annoy us to death, you know? And sometimes, how about our imperfect spouse? (sighs) My wife is way more gentle with me than I am with her. And that's not right. How about our annoying church family? Yeah. Let's get a little personal here. Some of us have idiosyncrasies that just drive the other people nuts. And we don't necessarily have to like it. We're just supposed to love each other. Okay? That's the body of Christ. Shining the light of Christ in a dark world because the world doesn't get it. And when they realize that we're doing it in submission to Christ, they... Take notice. Don't want to reveal Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, but that's part of it. Okay? And how about our demanding employers? Gentle? What about the uncooperative colleagues that we have, the people we work with? Gentle? I don't know. What about you young people, your unreasonable parents? This is just not right, Mom. This is just not right, Dad. 
Or do you throw a little hissy fit to get your own way? Gentle? Not really. So how can we improve? How we can progress? Remind ourselves of Jesus' example. Suffered in silence. And he sacrificed completely. There is nothing. I have to be reminded. There's nothing I can give in sacrifice for Christ that is greater than what he has given for me. But you know what? We don't like dying. <laughs> we don't like dying to ourselves. We want what we want, our way, when we want it, how we want it, and that's just it, and that's pride. I think we need to robe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. If you want to remind yourself, you can look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and Matthew 20, 28. Robe ourselves with gentleness. You know? Robe ourselves. That's Colossians 3.12. Put on, he says. Heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Put it on. Consciously. Think about this as you get up in the day. And I was like, I've been doing this sermon all week, getting ready, and I'm kind of going, oh man, yesterday I was driving, and some knucklehead was sitting at the stoplight, and a green arrow was sitting there. It was like, okay, well, no, 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 no. Gentle, Steve, gentle. You know, gentle. It's like, hey, buddy, I got places to go, things to do, and people to see. Pride. Gentle with the people we interact with. So let's robe ourselves and reach out in service. Yeah, serve people. Gentleness serves. And this one's not in there. This one's for free at the end. Number four, which is huge. Rely on the Spirit of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. I can't make it happen. If I'm resisting it, it's not going to happen. I have to cooperate, but I can't make it happen. And you shall inherit the earth. What's really interesting is if you look around, it's the power brokers, the political uh, bigwigs, it's all the business tycoons. They own the earth. Not completely. Romans chapter 8, we're joined heirs with Jesus. So right now we get a little bit of the blessing. But you know what's coming? Psalm 37 verse 11. We will inherit the earth. We will rule and reign with Jesus on this earth as the children of God and we can take that to the bank and use it as encouragement as we seek to be gentle in a world that is hostile. That's what I hear Jesus saying. So if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ or you are resistant to it or you're not sure if you know Jesus, my, my, my challenge to you is these traits expose how far we fall short of what God wants of us. But they also invite us to embrace poverty of spirit, mourning and gentleness, that we could be the children of God. And look at, if you're not blessed, what are you? Cursed. And no child of God wants anybody cursed. And so I beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God so that you can be one of His children and you can inherit the earth. You can inherit, you have the kingdom of God comforted when you mourn and you inherit the earth. That's my challenge, my invite, invitation. You just cry out to God and say, I'm a sinner, I need Christ, and I turn from my sin and I trust Him. Believers, when I was in high school, we went to Plover, Iowa. Anybody know where Plover, Iowa is? Yeah, Plover the big town of Plover, and we had just gotten new baseball uniforms. I mean, we looked dashing. 
you know, just right out of field of dreams. You know, we were, we were there in our you know, striped socks and our new baseball hats and our white shiny suits. And here the, here the farm boys came, you know. They got their feed and seed hats on, and they got their, you know, beshiveled uh, clothes on. They just looked like a bunch of ragtag people, and guess what? They beat us. We looked good. They played much better. The Christian life is not about how we look. It's not outward appearance. It's our internal attitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, they shall inherit the earth. And when we break bread and drink this cup, what we do is we remind ourselves of our poverty of spirit, which the Lord Jesus gave us and remedied through his death on the cross. We're reminded of our spiritual poverty, which only he can liberate. We, we, we have reason for mourning because our sin sent him to the cross. And we can reflect his gentleness by going in humility and partaking. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to break this bread and drink this cup with us. I encourage you to take a moment or two to get your heart right with God if there's something you need to confess and then as the praise team comes and as they play then as you feel led we have a table at the back and two tables up here nobody's compelled but you're sure free to come and partake of the elements let's pray Father thank you for your love for us for the message of the beatitudes and the blessedness that we can enjoy as your children to take our hearts and mold us and make us thank you Father for what you've given us as our possession now help us to progress in it we pray name.